0: The EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network presents Vatican Insider with Joan Lewis. Each week, Joan brings you news from inside the Vatican and the Church around the world, as well as interviews and answers to your questions. Now, here's the host of Vatican Insider, Joan Lewis. Welcome to a new edition of Vatican Insider on this first weekend of September. For Pope Francis, it is once again travel time. And this weekend, he's in Mongolia, his 43rd apostolic trip abroad. In what is normally the interview segment of Vatican Insider, I've prepared a special about papal trips, telling the story of the -the behind-the-scenes preparations that go into such a massive undertaking. I think you'll enjoy going behind the scenes. Before that, however, a look at the news stories of the week. Sunday, August 27th. Pope Francis led the recitation of the Angelus Prayer in St. Peter's Square and he invited Christians to renew their trust in the Lord, cultivating his presence through the word and the sacraments. After reciting the Marian prayer, Francis spoke about his upcoming apostolic journey to Mongolia from August 31st to September 4th. He said, this is a much desired visit and an opportunity to embrace a church small in numbers, but vibrant in faith and great in charity. He noted Mongolia's rich religious tradition that he will have the honor of getting to know, especially in the context of an interreligious event. The Pope expressed his happiness to be among the Mongolian people as a brother for all. The motto of the journey, Hoping Together, aims to underscore the double meaning of the Holy Father's apostolic journey to Mongolia that of a pastoral visit and of a state visit. At the Angelus, Francis also spoke of his prayers for the people who lost their lives in a major wildfire burning in northeastern Greece, one of the largest single wildfires ever to have struck a European Union country. By Sunday, it had killed 21 people and forced thousands to flee their homes. Francis also asked everyone to remain close to the Ukrainian people. Monday, August 28, the Vatican published a rescript written by Pope Francis in which he adopted a number of provisions to guide relations between the Apostolic Exarchate for Ukrainian Catholic Faithful of the Byzantine Rite, residing in Italy, and the Italian Episcopal Conference. The purpose is to enhance the spiritual care for members of the Apostolic Exarchate, which was established on July 11, 2019, with the bull, Cristo Salvatori*. Also Monday, the Holy Father sent a message to participants in the 60th International Congress of Forensic Toxicologists in Rome, and he raised the alarm over the increase in drug use among young people. Saying this highlights situations of fragility in our societies that are centered on performance and productiveness. Behind every addiction, he said, there are concrete experiences, stories of loneliness, inequality, exclusion, lack of integration, to which we cannot be indifferent. Francis spoke of the alarming increase in the consumption of narcotic drugs and other substances among teenagers and young people, thanks to the possibility of buying them online in the so-called dark web. He said we must reach out to those who suffer from drug addiction by listening to their suffering and addressing the fragilities of our societies. Also Monday, the Jesuit publication La Civiltà Cattolica published a lengthy transcript of the dialogue between Pope Francis and the Jesuits of Portugal during the Pontiff's visit to Lisbon for World Youth Day 2023. In the conversation, the Holy Father addresses a wide range of topics, sharing insights on the Church's challenges and his vision for inclusivity, doctrinal development, and the Synod. Tuesday, August 29th. In a message addressed to French business leaders, Pope Francis urged entrepreneurs to act on behalf of the common good, and he praised the value of work as an important element in human dignity. The message was read at the gathering in Paris' Longchamp racecourse by Archbishop Mathieu Rouget of Nanterre. Francis highlighted how the way to participate in the common good today is by creating jobs especially for young people. Put your trust in young people, he said. Every new job created is shared wealth, which does not end up in the banks producing financial interest, but is invested so that new people can work and make their lives more dignified. He said that if it's true that work ennobles the human person, it's even truer that it's the man who exalts work. Also Tuesday, Pope Francis's video with his September prayer intention was released. That intention is, Let us pray for those people on the margins of society, in subhuman living conditions, that they may not be neglected by institutions and may never be cast out. Wednesday, August 30th. During his general audience in the Paul VI Hall, Pope Francis praised the apostolic zeal of St. Catherine de Cavitha, first Native American saint of North America, saying her faith began in her family and her sufferings drew her to the cross, and her ordinary holy actions offer a powerful example. He noted that Kateri, born in upstate New York, was the daughter of a Mohawk chief and an Algonquin Christian mother who taught her to pray and sing hymns to God. Many of us have also been introduced to the Lord for the first time in the family, especially by our mothers and grandmothers, the Pope said. He said evangelization often begins like this, with simple, small gestures, like parents helping their children to learn to talk to God in prayer and telling them of his great and merciful love. The Holy Father also invited the faithful to pray for his journey to Mongolia. Thursday, August 31st. The papal plane left Rome's Fiumicino Airport at 6.30 p.m. for the nine-and-a-half-hour flight to Mongolia, landing shortly before 10 a.m. local time on Friday, September 1st. EWTN's Courtney Mares reported that when he got off the plane at Genghis Khan International Airport, Francis was welcomed by Mongolia's foreign minister and a young woman who offered the pope a cup of traditional Mongolian dried curds. This boiled yogurt specialty is made from the milk of cattle, yaks, and camels, and it symbolizes the nomadic culture of the Mongolian people as one of their most common travel provisions. Well, that's it for the news this week, but follow The Papal Trip on EWTN TV and on EWTN social media, YouTube, etc. Now, Stay tuned for my special on the behind the scenes of preparing a papal trip. This is Father Joseph Aitona from the Fathers of Mercy. We need Catholic Radio to spread the truths of Jesus Christ and his church. The more we feed our souls with good, solid, orthodox content, which is faithful to the magisterium of the Church, the more we can love God and spread that love to our neighbor. The world needs EWTN Catholic Radio, now more than ever. Saints are the heroes of the Catholic faith. They serve as examples for all Catholics, showing us how to lead a more satisfying, more spiritual life in communion with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. View our comprehensive documentation of saints who serve as theologians and doctors of the Church. Visit EWTN.com and click Catholicism. EWTN is the Global Catholic Network. Welcome back to Vatican Insider. Here's Joan Lewis. Welcome to Vatican Insider and a special I've prepared for you this week on Pope Francis' trip to Mongolia. Actually, it's about the background, the making, the preparation that goes into a papal trip. So I hope you enjoy some of the anecdotes and stories and perhaps a little bit of trivia here and there. When Pope Francis departed from Mongolia on August 31st, it was the start of his 43rd trip abroad since his election in March 2013. He has visited 12 countries in the Americas, 11 in Asia and 10 in Africa. One interesting note, so far the big numbers winner in papal trips is St. John Paul. During his almost 27-year reign, Pope John Paul II, nicknamed the Pilgrim Pope, made 104 foreign trips, more than all previous popes combined. In total, he logged more than 725,000 miles, a total distance equal to 28 times the circumference of the earth or three times the distance from the earth to the moon. Pope Benedict XVI made 25 foreign trips, the last one before his February 2013 resignation was to Lebanon in September 2012. Now, how exactly are papal trips planned? I've often been asked about the -the behind-the-scenes work in the making of a papal trip, and I thought I'd tell you about that today. I offer a general overview of plans and a specific look at some things like how the liturgical side of an apostolic trip is readied by the Master of Liturgical Ceremonies of the Supreme Pontiff. Everything looks so easy when you see an event unfold before your eyes on television or in person. But untold numbers of people are involved in massive undertakings such as papal trips and they are almost always the unsung heroes of the front page news stories. Months of preparation by dozens of people go into the planning and execution of a trip abroad so that all events from the landing of the Pope's plane to the arrival of luggage to ground transportation, security, meals, meetings and liturgical celebrations run smoothly. While they're important for the successful undertaking of a papal trip, such preparations are secondary to the primary pastoral nature of these apostolic visits. In the weeks and months that precede a trip, Vatican and local ecclesial officials meet, both in the Vatican and on the site of the planned visit, to determine physical locales and timetables for encounters and liturgical functions. In a so-called dress rehearsal of the Pope's trip, they usually visit each spot the Pope will visit in order to judge the distance to be traveled between two points, the time needed to cover it, and the length of the ceremony involved. The people involved are usually the apostolic nuncio or papal ambassador to a country, and the bishop or bishops of the diocese or dioceses visited, as well, of course, as Vatican officials. Often, for example, the advanced team will walk the distance between a car, the papal vehicle, and the entrance to a church or other building to see how long that takes. Of course, any impromptu handshaking by the Pope can ruin a well-timed schedule, as we have seen with Pope Francis. Now, Pope Francis's recent mobility issues have brought about some changes. He no longer climbs the steps of the papal plane, but rather, seated in a wheelchair, he is brought by an elevator to the passenger level of the plane. Now he normally is brought to venues in a wheelchair. He will often stand to deliver an address, although often a microphone is brought to where he is seated, including for masses. In the early stages of planning a papal visit, relatively few people are involved. Key officials from the Vatican work closely with the Ecclesial Organizing Committee of the host country, as well as with civilian authorities, such as those in charge of security, protocol, transportation, communications, and medical assistance. Authorities in the host country are principally responsible for security measures, and they work hand-in-glove with Vatican security. In 2008, for Pope Benedict's trip to the United States, The Secret Service was also involved, at every moment of every day, at every possible level. And that was true for Pope Francis' September 2015 visit to the U.S. Agents knew the name, age, address, sometimes even phone number, and perhaps even more, of every single person who attended a papal event. I was told they knew the occupant, for example, of every single seat, in both Nationals Stadium in Washington and Yankee Stadium in New York in 2008, even though the faithful had been previously chosen by a lottery procedure in the various parishes of the dioceses that gave out tickets. Secret Service agents were everywhere at the time and could be spotted by their gold lapel pins with a star in the center, and, of course, the ever-present sunglasses went outside. To digress for just a moment, I have to give the Secret Service credit during the U.S. visit, for they were spread really thin. They always cover the president, of course, but in Washington, they had to add the Pope to the mix. And my understanding is that the papal visit is the second highest security level for the service, following the top security level of a presidential inauguration. Britain's Prime Minister Gordon Brown also came to town in 2008, and then Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice went on a trip to the Middle East. The Secret Service played a huge role in the day-to-day work of the media in the U.S. I've been through security before, both here and in the Vatican, and on other papal trips, but absolutely nothing compared to our six days in the States. Many hours before attending a papal event, journalists going to the event had to be swept by the service. When the Secret Service announces start of sweep, all properly tagged journalists line up exactly where and how the agents tell you. You're wearing your double photo media ID credential, the large one from the Catholic Bishops' Conference, and the smaller one from the Secret Service, to which is added a plastic color and word-coded hang tag for the specific event you will attend. For example, our hang tag for Dunwoody Youth Rally was yellow, with R-L-Y-9 written on it, Rally 9. All cameras and camera equipment, tripods, lights, cables, etc., and all computers are put on the floor against one wall of the corridor, and the owners of those items line up on the opposite wall. Laptops and cameras must be open and working. Journalists then proceed to a separate room where there is airport-style security pockets emptied of keys, coins, etc. We wait in a holding room until our group is finished, after which we reclaim our belongings that were checked out, that is to say swept, by a canine and by other electronic equipment. This is done usually 5 to 6 hours before the start of an event. Relatively similar precautions take place in other countries, but not at this level. That has been my experience, at least, but then I've really covered only a small number of papal trips. Now, back to preparations for a papal trip. As these progress, more people become involved, especially in the host country. Altars must be built for outdoor sites. Tickets and programs and papal functions must be printed and distributed. Vestments, chalices, patents, etc., must be procured in greater than usual quantities for the papal masses and security must of course be arranged. By the way, I cannot stress enough that papal events are always free. Pope John Paul made a number of lengthy papal trips. Pope Francis, not so. On the vigil of his 1980 visit to Brazil, one of those 104 foreign apostolic trips he took as pope, John Paul said, The Pope travels, supported as was Peter, by the prayer of the entire church to announce the gospel, to confirm brothers and sisters in the faith, to console the church, to meet man. These are trips of faith, he said, of prayer, which always have at their center the meditation on and proclamation of the word of God, the Eucharistic celebration, the invocation of Mary. These trips are also occasions, said John Paul, for an itinerant catechesis, for an extended announcing of the gospel and the apostolic magisterium to all corners of the earth. They are trips of love, of peace, of universal fraternity. In these meetings of souls, even in the immense crowds, one sees that charism of today's Petrine ministry on the paths of the world. This and only this is the scope of the Pilgrim Pope, even if some would like to attribute other motives. This is the apostolic way, Peter's way, and Paul's way, said John Paul. The technical means at our disposition today facilitate this method. Pope John Paul at that time also underlined that his pilgrimages to the local churches serve to demonstrate the place they occupy in the universal mission of the church, and to underline the particular nature they have in building the universality of the church. Now, how does a pontiff decide when and where he will travel? All invitations that come to the Vatican from local churches are studied and evaluated. Many factors are contemplated before a decision is made, although two can especially influence a choice. Geography, that would include weather, and special events. In addition, civil and religious leaders often invite a pope to visit their country during a meeting in the Vatican. A pope and his aides often seek areas to which he has not previously traveled, look at the climate of a potential destination, and they look at whether a country will be host to an international event, such as a Eucharistic Congress or World Youth Day. In addition to the invitation of a local church, there must also be an invitation, or at least the consent, of the host country's government. Papal trips are always intended to be pastoral, not political, though a papal speech may well reflect knowledge of the political, economic, and social issues in the host country. Popes always reside in ecclesial buildings, the nuncios' residence, a bishop's residence, rectories, seminaries, or religious houses. The pope never stays in a government building, guesthouse, or hotel, nor does he travel with government leaders or take part in official government banquets. Pope John Paul did stay in a hotel in Baku, Azerbaijan, in 2002. There was no bishop in Azerbaijan, therefore no bishop's residence. At the time, believe it or not, there were only about 120 Catholics in the country. Once it's been decided where the Pope will travel, it's then determined how long he wants to be in a country and at what time of the year he will visit. A primary consideration in planning trips are previously scheduled appointments in the Vatican or annual celebrations, such as Christmas and Easter. When the final papal approval is given, other Vatican offices move into high gear, including that for liturgical celebrations and the Holy See Press Office. The Pope now starts to work on the speeches, greetings, and homilies that he will give in the course of a trip. Often he personally writes or dictates the guidelines and outlines of every discourse although some speeches he may write in their entirety. Aides, assisted by background material from the Secretary of State on the country's social and religious situation, will often write the speech in the language in which it will be pronounced. Popes John Paul and Benedict were very multilingual and often spoke in the language of the host country. Pope Francis' addresses are usually given in Italian or Spanish. And, as we have seen, Pope Francis has been known to put the written speech aside and speak off the cuff for long or short periods. After a site has been chosen, a papal advance man and perhaps some assistants travel to the host country or countries. Normally, only a few visits are required, as local prelates also come to Rome. Telephone calls, faxes, and emails do the rest. Years ago, when I spoke to Father Roberto Tucci, Later, Cardinal Tucci at Vatican Radio, he had been the Pope's advance man for years. He told me he had traveled so often to so many places for papal trips that when people saw him, even when he was in a place on his own vacation, they automatically assumed the Pope was coming. You have to love it. At the end of our talk about St. John Paul's trips, I asked Father Tucci if the Holy Father had any special dietary needs or requests. He said, no ice, no spice. So no cold beverages. And if they were cold, John Paul put his hands around the glass to warm it up. And no spicy food. Tasty, yes. Hot and spicy, no. Obviously, any special dietary preferences or allergies are reported to those in charge of preparing meals for a pope. Immediate preparations for a papal visit also include the meetings with the commercial airlines that transport the pope and his entourage. The Italian airline Ita replaced Alitalia fairly recently and now accompanies the Holy Father on the first leg of his destination. Often a carrier of the host nation accompanies the Pope back to Rome. One section of the plane is always for the Pope and his entourage and the economy section is for journalists. The papal entourage usually numbers about 30 people, the cardinal secretary of state, other officials from the Secretary of State who speak the languages of the country to be visited, the Prefect of the Papal Household, the Pope's private secretary, his physician, the Director of the Holy See Press Office and an assistant, several members of the Swiss Guards and the Pontifical Gendarmerie, and staff from Vatican Radio. Often, curial cardinals who are from the host nation and other cardinals who have ties to that nation are included. Journalists from print and electronic media, they number around 70 and pay an airfare equivalent to business or first class. Now a word on the selection of locations for papal meetings, masses, and other celebrations. Such choices are made based on a variety of factors, often including the percentage and number of Catholics in a country. Where there are few Catholics, a cathedral might be sufficient for mass. Where there are many, an open place such as a stadium, racetrack, or park must be sought out. These sites are important because liturgical celebrations are the heart of all papal trips. On the liturgical side, things are just as meticulous. I've been told that separate papal ceremonies require separate papal vestments. Those are carefully chosen, usually handcrafted, then laid out and packed. Each container of vestments is earmarked for a specific liturgy and bears a number and the name and location of the liturgy. There's a written list of all containers. That list is checked by the official who accompanies the containers to the airport, checking and double-checking as they are loaded onto the plane. Another official is at the arrival airport, and they too check and double-check all vestment containers as they come off the plane. In setting up daily schedules for the pontiff, there's usually a threefold objective, not to arrange events before 8 a.m., to set aside some time after lunch so the Pope and his entourage can rest, and to conclude the day's public events by 9 p.m. when possible. A Pope's spontaneous forays into crowds, of course, can often force modifications in well-planned schedules one very visible part of the holy father's land travels is the large white vehicle that has come to be known as the popemobile not a vatican invention the popemobile appeared during john paul's first trip to mexico in 1979 other countries adopted the idea and over time made changes and improvements some of these popemobiles have been sent as gifts to the vatican two from spain for example and these, in turn, are often sent to countries in advance of a visit in order to avoid an unnecessary expense. As we've seen in Rome and on trips, Pope Francis often employs more humble vehicles, often an almost anonymous sedan. If a papal trip seems smooth, it's because it was well-planned and beautifully executed, like a well-choreographed ballet. Does the Pope need to show his passport? as most immortal travelers do at international borders. The papal passport has a white leather cover and bears the number one. But usually, the Holy Father's smiling face is enough ID. Well, I hope you enjoyed that brief look behind the scenes, the making of a papal trip. For more information on these stories or to check out Joan's blog and to ask her a question, go to EWTN.com. That's EWTN.com. Thanks for listening to Vatican Insider on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network.